0: Good afternoon. I'm Jane Harmon, the president and CEO of the Wilson Center. And like me, you're probably uh, suffering from Zoom fatigue. However, uh, tune in here. This is a very important event, and I'm excited. This is one of the Zooms I'm really looking forward to uh, because we're celebrating here this, a new book, and an important book by our very own Nina Jankowitz. Uh, who has done stellar work as the Wilson Center's disinformation fellow, the coolest title of ever, uh, since last October. Before that, she was a scholar with our Kennan Institute on Russia and Ukraine and How to Lose the Information War, Russia, Fake News and the Future of Congress is an amazing conflict is an amazing title and it's essential reading for everyone on this call and uh, Zoom and all your friends. We remember Russia's successful campaign in 2016 to sow distrust and confusion in the US ahead of the presidential election, but in order to win the information war, as Nina would say, we need to understand what disinformation is. I've heard her on this topic before and what it is not. Disinformation is the use of false or misleading information with malign intent. That's different from misinformation which can also be harmful but lacks the malign intent. It also has broader goals than propaganda, which involves the promotion of a nation's worldview. As Nina writes, quote, unlike Soviet propaganda, which sought to promote a specific communist-centric worldview, the Kremlin today divides and deceives populations around the world with one goal in mind, the destruction of Western democracy as we know it, unquote. Our democracy, no surprise to anyone on the the Zoom, continues to face tremendous threats from disinformation. This year, we face not only another election, but also a pandemic, which Nina will tell us has bred a shadow pandemic of disinformation about COVID-19. I've heard her on this topic. We've done programming on it. And while she was writing the book, uh, Nina, like the rest of us, had no clue coronavirus was lurking around the corner but she's done an excellent job uh, keeping up with the changes as disinformation infects more and more of the media landscape. I'd like to say that Nina's job is to spread information in a world of disinformation. And in her book, she blends an engaging journalistic writing style with a rigorous look at how disinformation spreads. She draws on her on the ground experience in Ukraine, where she received a Fulbright grant to advise the Ukrainian government on strategic communications. Most importantly, she does what the Wilson Center does best, which is to offer clear-headed policy recommendations for the United States and other governments facing this challenge. Joining Nina on today's panel are Matt Rajansky, the Director of our Kennan Institute, as well as Asha uh, Gapa, a former FBI counterintelligence agent who is now Senior Lecturer at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global affairs. Please note that if you have questions for the panel, you can email them to kenan@wilsoncenter.org. Wilson Center is one word, or mention us on Twitter at the Wilson Center. To kick off the discussion now, um, uh, it's it's my delight uh, to to recognize Matt Rajansky and Nina. Kudos uh, and brava! Uh, you really are a treasure at the Wilson Center and. To write a book, in addition to all the other good work you do for us, is just magical. Very exciting. Over to you, Matt.
1: Thank you so much, Jane. I'm actually going to start things off, and I'm going to do that by thanking you and everyone at the Wilson Center so much for your support over the past three years. This process was a three-year-long process from uh, conception when I was living in Ukraine uh, to today here from my... Uh, my office, and I wouldn't have been able to do it without the support of the Kennan Institute and the Science and Technology Innovation Program in particular. Uh, Matt and the Kennan Institute saw the worth of this project when it was in its infancy and really supported it and helped, gave me the room and the space to develop it, and of course uh, Meg and the STIP program really shepherded it to the end. So I am so grateful uh, for your support and Um, I am thrilled to be with you here today. I thought I would um, read a little bit from the conclusion of the book, which I wrote around this time last year, uh, the end of July, early August, when I was trying to imagine what a dystopic future scenario would look like for the United States if we did not begin to push back against disinformation, not just Russian disinformation, but the domestic variety as well, which has begun to infect our discourse at a really alarming rate recently. And so again, this is a dystopic future. I think you'll find some of the elements uh, are hitting a little bit closer to home than I imagined when I wrote them. So imagine it's July, 2028, and another US presidential election is fast approaching. Talking to most Americans though, you wouldn't know it. Turnout has been on a steady decline since 2020 when allegations of a nationwide Democratic Party organized social media manipulation campaign spread. After Election Day came and went, Trump easily won a second term, a Ukrainian journalist uncovered that the manipulation story was fabricated. It originated from a troll account based in Sochi, Russia, where another troll factory had been operating quietly for years. The story alleged the leadership of the Democratic National Committee itself had been using Russian-style social media tactics. With a well-timed tweet from an inauthentic account in Sochi to Rudy Giuliani, the rumor got its legs. And with a single retweet, the former New York mayor turned the entire Twitter sphere rabid. Then it crossed party lines. It was no matter that the story was complete hearsay. No one ever produced a shred of concrete evidence about the whole affair. But after the DNC had been hacked and its emails plastered across the internet during the 2016 election, it had lost the trust of its members and, more importantly, unaffiliated swing voters. They were fed by nonstop coverage of the scandal. In a vicious and unending circle, the news media reported on the new allegations, despite a lack of evidence. It was what voters, candidates, and parties were discussing. How could they leave it untouched? Doubt in the integrity of the American electoral process ballooned. On election day, technical difficulties at precincts with electronic voting machines were perceived as potential vote hacking. And the lack of investment in the security and improvement of American election infrastructure since 2016 made that theory seem plausible. Doubt bred low turnout. Despite four years of organizing against Trump, youth turnout reached its lowest levels ever. Young people were too disillusioned with the corrupt system to participate it. Trump's base, ever loyal, turned out in droves. He won re-election, and the deterioration of the American information ecosystem continued apace. His administration slashed funding for the public broadcasting station and national public radio and set US foreign broadcasters on a path to extinction. This, of course, is the ideal outcome for Moscow. American democracy, once a shining city on a hill, is weak and crumbling in 2028. The debate, dissent, and protest on which the U.S. was founded are increasingly foreign concepts. Corruption, once kept in check by an active media and engaged electorate, reaches to the highest levels of government. Consumed by problems at home, the U.S. is less engaged abroad. And the Kremlin points to the failings of our democratic system to justify repressions and a broader embrace of authoritarianism inside and outside its borders. This scenario shouldn't seem far-fetched, the United States, along with some of the countries profiled in my book and venerated European democracies. We're all on our way to a fact free version of democracy light in which the tenets of the democratic process participation and protest are under attack. My book, How to Lose the Information War, lays out how to avert this scenario and lays out how to rebuild our discourse. Reporting from five countries on the front lines of the information war, Estonia, Georgia, Poland, Czech Republic, and Ukraine, I introduce readers to the people who have fought Russian disinformation, some successfully, some less so, and the lessons that they've learned. The most important one is that people need to be at the heart of the response to disinformation tech platforms, governments, journalists, none of them can fact check their way out of the crisis of truth and trust that we face. But if we educate our citizens and we repair the cracks in our democracies that allowed troll farms to influence them in the first place, we might have a shot at averting disaster. If we don't, I fear our efforts will become another cautionary tale and another example of how to lose the information war. And now I'm gonna turn it over to Matt.
2: Well, thank you so much, Nina. Thank you, Jane and Asha for joining us. Um, Nina said it exactly right. We uh, at the Kennan Institute uh, were enormously pleased to have found Nina. Um, Really, it wasn't uh, Kennan supporting Nina, but really Nina's work supporting Kennan's mission at a a really difficult time uh, for talking and thinking seriously about Russia, Ukraine, Uh, former Soviet region issues generally, and certainly anything that had a whiff of election interference about it, it, you will all know very well, I I can't imagine anyone on this call hasn't noticed that you can't open your mouth and have a conversation about what's happening in that part of the world without it instantly really basically becoming about American politics. And Nina comes along with just an avowedly, doggedly, I would say, uh, clear commitment to the idea that you can work on this topic and not have it just be a proxy for American domestic politics or for some other kind of polit- uh, political agenda. So uh, I just want to offer a, a few further thoughts about you know, why this, this book is so worthwhile to pick up and read. Uh, I have read it uh, and really enjoyed it and, and benefited from it and why uh, the Kennan Institute was so fortunate to be able to, to support Nina in her work. Um, You know, first is that there's something almost uh, metaphorically perfect about the fact that Nina began as a George F. Kennan Fellow uh, in what seems like ancient history back in 2017, uh, and has ended up now still wonderfully with us at the Wilson Center, but in the Science, Technology, and Innovation Program uh, as the Disinformation Fellow. Uh, It actually sounds like a rank you might have on the Death Star, but it's, it's not that Um, It's it's a cool new opportunity that didn't exist back in 2017. But it's not only that coincidence, it's actually the fact that when you start to unpack a lot of the dysfunctional and dangerous dynamics in Russia's conflict with the West, disinformation being only one of them, you find yourself relatively quickly, when you get to the essence of the issue, you find yourself in a place that's not so much about Russia or about US-Russia relations. It's almost always about something bigger, something that's global in nature. Uh, something that's fundamentally human, something that's about sort of who we are, how we define ourselves, the conflicts that make the world go round and make us tick, and so on. And so I think it's actually very fitting that Nina's research, in a sense, followed that pathway as well. And I'll come back. I'll come to this in just a moment. That I think her her final recommendations are just just exactly on point in that respect, uh, as opposed to so much of what we we see in here in Washington. Um, but let me say a word about the regional case studies. You know, you'll see that this is a book that's organized into essentially country chapters. Um, I read a lot of books about the former Soviet space. Um, a lot of them are organized into country or regional chapters, um, and a lot of them aren't worth your time for that reason. They, they sort of treat each of these uh, cases as kind of interchangeable. Um, they will apply the same kind of tired methodologies. Uh, they will shoehorn. Uh, individual players into the same uh, what you might call typecast roles, who is the champion of democracy in this country, who is the Kremlin agent in this country, right? I mean, you, you all know these narratives. Nina doesn't do that, right? These are rich. Uh, I think I think Jane used the term sort of almost journalistically very, very well uh, narrated uh, retellings of Nina's own experiences on the ground in these countries to give you a very rich slice uh, of what it is like to be engaged in a public debate in which disinformation features prominently um, in countries that are by and large in, in the border region with Russia, of course, Poland um, bordering Kaliningrad. Uh, and, and, uh, and of course, the Czech Republic uh, not, but, but bearing the legacy of communism nonetheless and quite a bit of Russian influence. So there's, there's a Russian element, there's an element that's much bigger than Russia, There is an element uh, that is very specific to the region, the country, the time and place. All of that is of great value. Um, Then there's a big question that's raised, and I hope we can come to this in our discussion, and that's the question of incentives. Um, This is something that we as Americans need to be thinking very hard about now. Uh, We have, I would argue, one of the most, uh, Jane will know this very well, one of the most rigid two-party systems in the world. Uh, where the incentives, if you're if you're coming uh, from the outside or from from the fringe, right? Heaven forbid you should have an idea that's not from the mainstream. Uh, you know, if someone is apparently helping you, right? If someone is stirring up dispute, discussion, debate, chaos that maybe brings more attention to your cause. It's very hard in the face of that sort of uh, monolithic mainstream machine to decline that help or distance yourself from it. And I think this is one of the topics that's absolutely vital uh, that Nina raises in the book, um, as we watch really dangerous fringe elements gain traction through disinformation in her case studies. Um, But how do we address this in the United States in a context where who's to say out the gate uh, that new ideas are not needed in our debate? And then uh, finally, I I just want to echo Nina's uh, own concluding words in in her excerpt that it's about us, it's about people, it's about education, it's about democracy, and and I'd introduce the term resiliency. you know, to, to, to kind of complete the thought that I opened earlier, uh, one of the, the most um, exhaustively uh, written about and I think also exhausting in its ineffectiveness uh, policy um, lanes is, is that of punishing bad guys. Uh, we have been in search for a quarter century or more of tools that will work to punish bad guys, whether that bad guy is Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong Un. Uh, or Al-Qaeda, and we've done, you know, every flail back and forth between sort of overuse of sanctions and overuse of drones and overuse of, you know, kind of uh, diplomatic finger wagging. And what is enormously refreshing, and if I may say so, fundamentally George F. Kennan about what Nina has written, is that it looks inward. It is self-critical about the way that we are not resilient in the face of challenges that are going to be there, whether there's a Vladimir Putin out there behind them or there isn't. Uh, And so I find that very refreshing. It it is an unfortunate description of an unfortunate reality. Uh, But it is, in that sense, very, very refreshing. So uh, I want to give the floor to Asha. And then I think we're going to have a bit of a conversation. And then we'll pivot to uh, a question from Jane and and questions from our our, uh, audience out there. So please.
3: Thank you, Matt. Um, I wanted to just pick up where you left off in terms of why this book is really important to America's understanding of this problem, which I think is stymied for three main reasons, I would say. And and this book actually addresses all three of those. Um, the first is that, you know, the As as Nina points out in her book, um, this is not America's first rodeo with disinformation coming from Russia. Uh, This was the KGB's MO. Uh, The House had hearings about this in 1982. We've looked at this. But largely with the fall of the Soviet Union, we thought it was all over. And I think that what Nina's book does is it goes through starting, you know, soon after Putin comes to power and how methodically the KGB's tactics uh, and, and methods have been practiced, refined, uh, you know, incorporated new technologies. And basically, as we stood by, um, they've been practicing <laughs> and they've been finding ways to make this more and more effective as it's crept closer and closer to the United States and it literally caught us unaware because we stopped seeing Russia as a, a serious threat. Um, and you know, in 2008, I think uh, Obama even made fun of, or 2012, Obama made fun of Romney uh, for saying that that Russia was a threat. I think this is, I think what Nina shows also with this kind of uh, our our blinders being on, and with what she mentions about. Russia not being constrained by an ideology is that it actually gives Russia much more flexibility in terms of putting its tentacles into uh, American society, which is something that was very constraining for it uh, during the Cold War. Um, We had a natural prophylactic because we were in an ideological struggle. So there were only really fringe elements that could be receptive to, you know, communist efforts whereas now we see that they've made inroads into the fringe right into the left um, and so i think it's this kind of uh, global iteration the practicing of the, all of these methods and we can see it each of these case studies an element that has shown up um, in the united states in each of these countries there's some aspect of it that is is manifested here um, it's an important lesson for us um, you know the second thing and this kind of goes along with why we had our blinders on is that Americans have, or, well, I guess I'll put it here. Um, I went into the FBI in 2002, um, right after 9-11. It has been all terrorism all the time. Um, we just, we don't think of uh, a threat um, if it doesn't involve blowing things up, and dead bodies, you know, and somebody trying to light a shoe, you know, on fire on an airplane, you know, that's when we start taking you know, drastic measures. Um, this, I think, for Americans, we're very naive about this. Um, it, it, it's hard for Americans to get their mind around. And I think this is just also a partly about the American psyche, because we haven't been practiced upon, like in these case studies, where they've developed um, a certain you know, understanding of it. Um, Americans fundamentally don't, don't get it. Um, we think of war. We think we have we have very clear dichotomies in America: war and peace, you know, um, terrorism or you know, or no threat or something like that. I mean, we have these very clear ideas, um, and this really, the information warfare, really turns this on its head. Um, and I think that these case studies really help illuminate why this is very dangerous, why this is a threat, even if you don't see something blow up, um, or you know, uh, it's not you know, um, an explosion or something like that. I, and I think related to that, and this is the third thing, I also think Americans are very naive about the idea of information as a weapon. This, I think, is partly a good thing, um, and it's because we are, you know, our First Amendment, our Constitution, um offers so you know so much robust space so much space for uh robust disagreement our freedom of the press and so we have been conditioned as americans to think of of speech and information as a net positive um and the way that you know the marketplace of ideas the way that you combat bad speech is with good speech um and we haven't fully understood how the marketplace of ideas doesn't necessarily translate uh, into the digital space. Um, And this whole idea of of information as a weapon um, is really something that we're just getting our mind around. And I think Nina does a fantastic job of explaining why this is dangerous and why this actually can translate. I think uh, the flash mob piece that you um, describe in your first chapter about how information can actually translate into behavior where people actually can become puppets and then act out on the beliefs that you know they're being um, they're they're consuming. Um, I think is a very very important lesson for um, an American audience to understand. So I think you you kind of hit all of these um, you know blind spots, these places of ignorance that I think American audiences have when it comes to this issue, Nina. Um, and I hope that we kind of touch on all of these because. Um, it can be hard to get your mind around. I think it's very easy to say,
0: eh,
3: you know, yeah, I can check my sources. What's, what's the big deal? Um, why is this really a problem that we should address? So um, thank you for that. I learned a lot from from your book. Um, and I'll admit that I'm not a person who is an expert in Eastern Europe. And also as someone who is affiliated with the with the media, our media does not do a good job also of focusing on what is happening abroad. We are incredibly ignorant of um, what's happening abroad. So I think that you shine a light on why that's important to, to us and what's happening now.
2: Well, great. Thank you, Asha. Um, I, I think uh, the goal, if, if we can, for the next 15 minutes or so is to um, give people a bit of a teaser taste of some of the important uh, takeaways from the book. And And I think the single most important one to start with is um, from all of these case studies and, and from the, the history that Asha referred to of this not being new, um, you know what is it that we can learn that we should have known as early as 2016 but really that we should know in 2020 and maybe before 2028 as your, as your conclusions.
1: Sure. So there's three things that really, I think, stand out among these case studies and they weren't necessarily things that I knew I was going to encounter when I was out there doing the interviews doing the reporting. The first is the homegrown element to all of the operations that I detail. So. Often, you know, Americans talk about fake news as if it is stuff that is just purely cut and dry fakes. And I actually had a conversation with my editor about the subtitle of the book because I really didn't love that fake news was in it. But it is a signpost for people, right? Um, but the the terminology is wrong. Uh, the best disinformation is grounded in real visceral feelings, and the most successful operations use these homegrown actors in order to get them out there. So in Estonia, in 2007, Russia was able to kind of manipulate the Russian ethnic population in Estonia in order to foment unrest, in order to carry out cyber attacks uh, from abroad on Estonia, and in order to kind of undermine um, this newly uh, transatlantic country's future in, in the block. Little did, uh, little did Russia know that this would actually become Estonia's brand, right, as this defender of cyberspace and uh, e-country. So that was kind of flipped on its head. But in all of the other case studies in, in Poland using the 2010 plane crash, that killed President Lev Kaczynski uh, in the Czech Republic using anti-Muslim sentiments in order to foment discord and in the Netherlands in 2016 when the Netherlands was voting on a referendum for Ukraine's associate, association agreement using uh, the Dutch kind of EU skepticism, Euroskepticism against Ukraine not only to undermine EU unity, but undermine Ukraine's uh, support in the Euro-Atlantic community. So all of these things are are pre-existing fissures and they are brought forth by homegrown actors. And Asha touched upon the example in the first chapter of the book, which was published as an excerpt by Politico magazine this past weekend. Um, So anyone who wants to get a taste of it can look that up. But it's about a flash mob uh, that was a musical show tunes flash mob in front of the White House in 2017, when a left leaning group had been supported by Russian actors to go out and do this flash mob and get uh, a large amount of the, uh, the of, of attendees through Facebook advertising, so homegrown actors is, is a huge part of it. but all of these countries that have a somewhat successful response, as I, I noted in uh, the excerpt that I read just now, they all address people's participation in this equation. they address education, they address journalism and the media as a public good. And they're investing in these long-term generational solutions to help people navigate the information environment that they're in, uh, the information ecosystem that is now kind of rapidly degrading, um, rather than just playing whack-a-troll and trying to eliminate fake accounts and bad actors online. And then the third uh, theme, I think, is that we cannot fight disinformation coming from abroad when we are using it ourselves. Um, I saw this playing out in Georgia last summer when I was there during the protests that uh, broke out after a Russian parliamentarian appeared in Georgian parliament uh, during a a strange uh, kind of orthodox conference that they were having there and the, the Georgian people were not having that. And yet they, the uh, the ruling party there, Georgian Dream was using this information in order to spread a different narrative about what had happened. It's certainly happening in Poland. We are seeing this in the lead up to their election this weekend. And it's happening here in the United States as well. Our national security doctrine, the people I know across the federal government, uh, many folks on both sides of the aisle on Capitol Hill really believe that this is an issue This is a threat. And yet all of that good work is undermined by things that are happening, unfortunately, in the executive branch and uh, narratives that are being spread from from the White House itself sometimes. And that is very disturbing to me. We cannot fight disinformation coming from abroad. And now it's coming from not only Russia, but China and Iran and Venezuela, if we are creating it and using it on our own people. And that is the biggest warning for me as we head into this election cycle
2: let's stop uh, for just a minute on your last point there, Nina, if we can, and and I want to bring in Asha in this as well. I mean, so first, I'm curious, can you give a broader across-the-board assessment of where the United States is maybe successful? I mean, the picture sounds actually pretty bleak. Are there any areas where we're doing a good job as a matter of policy? Uh, And then on the other side of the equation, um, yeah, it it, it may very well be true that the government uh, shoots itself in the foot. Uh, in terms of the response, or there's not enough political will. Uh, but what about the areas in which uh, maybe just the phenomenon of government is is the problem? Is is not you know um, people distrust government, just period, right? And that that can't just be about this current political moment. That that movement's been around for 30 years. People feel that there's like an elite cabal of people who dress their agenda in national security terms here in Washington try to control everything and therefore the opposite of what they say has a good chance of being true, right? The sort of conspiracy curious crowd, if you will. So I just want to put a few of those ideas out there and maybe invite you both to, to comment on where we're being successful, where we're being unsuccessful, and maybe maybe where government actually shouldn't have a role or, or can't have a role in, in the solutions.
1: Asha, so why don't you go first and I'll build on what you say. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there is this, there is this sense that
3: the government should be solving this problem. And you know, ironically, I think the government is really very ill placed to solve the problem, even if there were political will, which as Nina has noted, there is it. Um, as when I was in the FBI, I worked what are called perception management um, cases. And these are foreign intelligence operations that are trying to um, engage in propaganda and disinformation. And they're very difficult to work because you don't, there's no punishment that you can really put. Uh, you can't censor them. Um, you know, you might threaten them with, you know, the Foreign Agent Registration Act, but you know, it. What countries like Russia take advantage of is our open society um, and our free press. Um, I think compounding that problem is just the lack of technological savvy uh, among members of Congress. I mean, th- this is like, you know, they're they're very they're they're older, uh, and you know, they're not. Uh, necessarily um, using these technologies, or they don't fully understand the model, and so they're very—they're not going to be in a great place to regulate them. And even regulation um, can't keep up with the pace of technological change, so it could become um, obsolete. What I will say about uh, government response is that, you know, as an intelligence operation, the way that you neutralize disinformation is through exposure. In other words, disinformation can only work if you are being duped into believing that the information is coming from, say, an organic source, a fellow American. If it's the flash mob, they think that it's just their fellow, you know, progressives that are putting it together. When you know the source of it, um, it ceases to have the same power. Um, And in this way, I think, you know, this book, I think things like the special counsel's um, indictment of uh the russian nationals and the companies that were engaging in the social media influence um operations um the exposure is very important because uh that breaks down um really the, the entire power of the operation that's what i would say but i think i think the government is and i think you address this in your conclusion nina um we are if we're expecting the government to save us it's not going to happen. I mean, the government can engage in strong deterrent tactics as a foreign policy response um, you know, against Putin. But as far as stopping the disinformation, that isn't going to happen. Um, this is about equipping the populace. And I think, Matt, you mentioned a really important thing that I, I hope we get to, which is also there needs to be a rebuilding of social trust um, among Americans that will then also act as a prophylactic. I think in countries where you have a lot of social trust, like for example, I think Japan would be a very difficult country to infiltrate with with disinformation. Um, it's a very strong uh, country with a lot of social trust, um, you know, among its uh, its citizens. So that's that's what I would say. And Nimi, I'm sure you have more to add.
1: Yeah, that's a great jumping off point for me. So I'll get to some of the investments that I think we should be making in in kind of the citizens-oriented space, as I call it. Um, but the the place that I think is doing a good job in that awareness raising and kind of Um, exposure element that Asha was talking about is the Department of Homeland Security, Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, is doing a great job. I think they had a really interesting campaign about how disinformation works uh, related to pineapple on pizza. Um, And it tried to kind of pit people against each other based on whether or not they like pineapple on their pizza, which is kind of a, a silly example, but drew people in and kind of explained to them how uh, that discord is created online. It's not necessarily about changing votes, right? It's about distracting us and creating that discord. Um, I, I hope that they get, you know, more funding, not only to do those sorts of campaigns, but to protect our, our electoral infrastructure because that's their one of their main uh, jobs. Um, other parts of the government, I think, are suffering from being a bit siloed and having uh, too small a mandate, essentially. So the Global Engagement Center at the State Department, some fantastic people there are real experts, but um, they are focused on programming abroad, which is great, but we're not repairing the, the fissures in our own society um, when we are, we are just projecting outward. Um, And that's something we've really not invested enough in yet. There are several bills that are stuck in Congress, unfortunately, because they have been politicized that deal not only with transparency on social media, such as the Honest Ads Act, but uh, but about education and awareness building, um, Senator Klobuchar in particular has a an education bill that is stuck in committee right now as well. Um, so I hope to see more investments in that area. Um, and of course it's a little bit difficult with the way our federal education system works. Uh, you can't tell states what to do, but you can give them grants right, to develop this curriculum together with experts uh, to implement it not only through our schools, but th- to voting age populations as well through things like libraries. Um, as as well as civil society organizations that are locally based in states, so that's something I would really love to see. And then more investments in public media. One of the reasons I decided to read that excerpt today uh, is not just to pat myself on the back and say, like, look how prescient I, I was, but um, <laughs> but because today we had news um, that the U.S. Agency for Global Media, which oversees Voice of America and Radio Free Europe, is cracking down uh, even more on kind of the freedom that the journalists there. Um, we're enjoying. And there was news that the foreign journalists who work for those agencies won't get their visas renewed um, at the end of their visas, which I think is a real shame. And these are two vectors, at least in our region, Matt, uh, Voice of America and RFE, that I think have a huge positive impact, a really good brand association in our region. And the fact that um, the government is Trying to dismantle them at this moment is is something that I feel um, really really strongly about, um, and I think is a real mistake, so I would caution that for anyone who might be listening who's dealing with that policy to to revert that because I think those are um, jewels in the crown they are established. Uh, I know Matt and I have both gone on Voice of America programs very recently, um, and we do that because we we know that reaches people's ears there and it's worth investing in
2: so Nina. Uh, oh. Go ahead, please.
1: Oh, I, I wanted to ask Nina about her
3: first point um, two, two responses ago. <laughs> um, you know, about, about Russia exploiting fishers um, in, in, each, in, in these countries. And one of the things that struck me about um, when I was reading your book is, you know, how in the weeds Russia is about, you know, with knowing, um, knowing its enemy. Right, I, it understands that you know Poland is is different than Estonia. I mean, it really knows like what what uh, little cleavages to tweak, and and especially in um, the U.S. And I just want—I was wondering if you could say like I was especially struck by your case study of Poland. Mm-hmm. Um, and after the plane crash, you mentioned that one of the things that Russia did—it um, was a very simple move, but it was so effective—was that they wouldn't provide any, they wouldn't provide the wreckage from the plane um, or, or anything. And I saw this as an example of reflexive control, right? They just withheld this. And what they knew would happen is it would foster conspiracy theories because you withhold the information and then that itself would just take, take on. And so um, you don't mention reflexive control directly, but it is something that they do and they're able to do it because they know exactly how their enemy will respond to the smallest action and i'm just wondering if you could just comment on that generally just you know that that they they are very methodical in that way in a way that i don't think our intelligence agencies are quite frankly Um, and also how do we protect against that i i don't know how like you know it's almost like um i mean we're we're complicit in the manipulation because we kind of advertise exactly what will what will push our buttons i guess yeah
2: well, if, if i can if yeah matt go ahead a question there as well Nina, asha thank you for bringing that up because this this is our hobby horse as you know the three years running the world's leading uh, you know think tank for regional studies and certainly the, the leading institution in the united states for that is that the one of the things that has always characterized the russians is they pay really close attention to what's going on in foreign countries' discourse about themselves. Mm -hmm. I got to ask you all, I mean, I know you don't necessarily work on this every day, but do you really think that your cross-sectional American government person can tell you how Russians see themselves? Like, they could maybe name, like, one Russian, Vladimir Putin. That's, That's pretty much what we got, and that's part of, it's like unilateral disarmament. Sorry, I, I just have to jump
3: no, I really agree. And you, that's a great
1: way to put it. I'm glad you jumped in, Matt, because I was going to invite you to. I, I think regional studies are something that uh, we should absolutely be investing more in. Uh, the fact that I ended up at the Kennan Institute as my first appointment at the Wilson Center is not a coincidence. And I did two area studies degrees before that. I mean, I think that, that depth of knowledge is something that Russia has always invested in. And they invest in that not only in their near abroad, but in the United States as well. I mean, the fissures that they manipulating here um, are on all sides of the political spectrum and they get down to some very wonky, weird uh, little cleavages in our society. You're absolutely right, Asha. How do we protect against it? I mean, we need more expertise there, again, so investment in in all of uh, these regional studies, area studies programs, I think is is extraordinarily important. Um, But again, I think it's also about building a broader knowledge base and um, really uh, really responsible coverage in the media, which I'm not sure I, we have had over the past four years. Um, I really cringe every time I see, you know, the uh, St. Basil's Cathedral propagated as the, as the Kremlin in, in, you know, imagery about Russia or bad cyrillic, fake cyrillic, that sort of thing. Uh, and things that present Russia as only our foes, right? We're going to have to get through this and cooperate. I, I hope one day that will happen. Um, right now, obviously, that isn't necessarily possible. But uh, we need broader understanding, not only of Russia but of all of our adversaries, to to understand how they're going to react to things the same way that they are doing this this to us. And that would be my answer there. I know it's not satisfying to a lot of people. We just want to you know play a very much larger version of whack a troll with countries that upset us, but that's not sustainable over the long term. And while I think sanctions and uh, holding countries to, you know, their agreements internationally is extraordinarily important. We also need the stuff that's going to make us more resilient in the long term. And that's what the book tries to get to. Uh, I would would add, uh,
3: sorry, I would would just add in there that I think that it's also a consequence of our sense of military superiority. Um, understanding your enemy at a cultural level is really, you know, it's the poor man's way of warfare, right? Um, whereas from our point of view, we're like, oh, well, if push comes to shove, we'll just bomb them. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of where I think how we've all, always approached it. And I think it it really puts us in this um, imbalanced situation because it it just makes us a, an easier um, adversary mm-hmm. um, because we're really just approaching the issue from just completely different planes. And I think you talk about that, the whole idea of hybrid warfare and how... We just don't get our minds around it at all from the the Western point of view. I'm I'm sorry, Matt, go ahead.
2: No, I I was actually just going to pivot us to to some of the many questions we've gotten in from the audience uh, and and starting with Jane's question, but um, I just want to echo what you have both said. To me, this is an exceptionally important point. We continually find ourselves shocked, shocked (laughs) by what is being done to us by the world. And the reality is... It's, it's because we've been complacent for so long. And I don't mean by that that we haven't been tough enough. I simply mean we have been too comfortable in the idea that we are the predominant power in the world. We tell people how it's going to be, and they ask, you know, how high should I jump, right? And, and the reality is, you know, when others want to push back, of course they will push back asymmetrically. And that's yeah. what this entire conversation is about. This is asymmetric, hybrid, whatever you want to call it. Um, Jane, if you are still with us, I would like to give you the first audience question and then we have lots more and about 18 minutes to get through it. So, <laughs> Jane, are you with us? Yes, Jane's back.
0: Uh, unmute, please. There we go. Uh, I've been trying to get in. I don't know how I got out, but <laughs> never mind. modern <laughs> technology, uh, everybody. I just, Nina, I just got to tell you again how proud we are of you. And the contribution you make, and the and the the passion you have for the scholarship and for improving the world—it's all stuff that I you know resonate with and just love about you. So, Thank and you. this Thank whole you. conversation couldn't be better. So, I'm channeling David Petraeus, who most of you know is a famous American uh, retired general who always asks, uh, "How do, how does this end?" He asks it about wars, but this is a war uh, of sorts. How does this end or does this ever end? I mean, for example, we at, the, at STIP, as you know, uh, teach uh, um, uh, artificial intelligence, among other things, that we teach to health staff. And I don't think AI ever ends. I think we find a way to ride the tiger and all that. Is, is that what this is too? Is, is this not ever going to be defeated? I know you said resilience is a huge part of this strategy. I get that. But is this always going to be with us?
1: Well, I think for some extent, to some extent, especially when you look at the historical uh, examples, not only from the Soviet period, but I mean you can go back to ancient Greece and certainly to the period of yellow journalism here in the United states for for similar examples, but what's changed about today is is the tools and tactics uh, and the speed at which the information spreads, right? Um, So part of this is not only building resilience, but we have to get the regulatory framework in place uh, so that we can respond more effectively. I know we've done work um, on this at STIP in February. We were lucky enough to have Senator Warner here addressing us about, well, not here in my room, but at the Wilson Center in a past life (laughs) uh, when uh, we were discussing Uh, how to bring about, you know, positive democratic-based social media regulation, and it's an area which the United States is abdicating its leadership in right now, unfortunately, not only for our own citizens, but for the governments that have a lot less visibility with the social media platforms that are dealing with, uh, you know, genocides that are starting on their platforms, like in Burma, or dealing with an onslaught of fake news from an adversary, like in Ukraine. Um, I think the regulation point will, will allow us to stem the flow, but I don't think that it's ever going to really fully change. Um, one thing that will also help is if politicians are going to you know, start uh, holding themselves to a higher standard. I know Matt uh, was really interested in discussing this question about how do you incentivize the fact that it helps politicians and parties to do this very sort of cheap uh, manipulation of the information space. And my answer to him when we were discussing this earlier was was regulation. I mean, we have to have these these regulations about campaign finance, about online transparency for political ads, et cetera. They need to be in place. And the fact that we haven't gotten that done over the past three and a half, four years, um, leaves us way more vulnerable, not only to the foreign manipulation, but to manipulation from within as well
2: that is that is such a hugely important point, nina and and I wish it were as easy as knowing that we need rec- regulation and passing it. but as we've seen, as you say, very very right to bring up the example of campaign finance, you know Jane knows this very well it's It's because both sides, or arguably all sides in a complex multiplayer game, see potential advantage, you know, when the gray money or whatever it is can work to their advantage, just as when the disinformation can work to their advantage and and you know asking people to be, the bigger person in that kind of zero-sum, winner-takes-all context, it, it seems like a fool's errand. And I just one very small point here: uh, as as a regional studies person, I really felt the differences between uh, very small and relatively tight-knit societies like Estonia or even Georgia. Although you know the, the, the sort of fractiousness and chaos of Georgian politics was well captured in your in your chapter. Versus the United States, like we're yeah. never going to have an Estonia-type response. That's like asking us to be like Singapore on petty vandalism. It ain't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you know again, read the book because you'll you'll draw your own conclusions. Look, I want to if we can uh, take a few questions here and, and Asha invite you to comment as well. Um, we have a couple that are grouped around uh, this sort of policy prescriptions related to education. So I'm just going to kind of uh, quickly read them. Uh, Kurt Kuhn from the Institute of World Politics asks if Nina can elaborate on education as an antidote for disinformation, um, what kind of education is needed, and so on. Um, and then uh, Colonel Jason Gresh, who's actually with us at the Kennan Institute now as our uh, Army Foreign Area Officer Fellow, um, who is a, a FAO in the Eurasian region, he asked for Nina to comment on uh, ideas for digital and media literacy uh, to combat disinformation akin to what Estonia has done. So talk a little bit more about the kind of education as an antidote
1: sure um so i think both of those can can be together it's not just that you know education and and media literacy or digital literacy has to be separate Um, and i'll bring up ukraine as an example of a good case uh, where this has you know really had an impact in a short period of time um the organization irex i think there are a few irexers on the call from what i saw from uh, the attendee list i always bring up their program learn to discern which uh, trained a bunch of at first librarians who then went out and trained people in all of ukraine's regions Um, they've done a really interesting study follow-on study about how those skills were retained over a period of a year and a half, I think. And, and there are really positive results. And what I love about this program is it's not politicized. It teaches people how to recognize emotional manipulation. It teaches them how to do basic kind of source evaluation and about the media environment in Ukraine. It teaches them about hate speech. These are the tenets of a program that I would love to see. How do we deliver that? Again, I mentioned libraries and civil society organizations before. I think there's room for the social media platforms to be doing more of this work as well you know these are billion dollar corporations with ubiquitous access to people's lives. Um, and the fact that they think that somehow placing an ad in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times that says 10 tips to spot false news is enough um, in terms of you know a fulsome attempt to reach out to their users and educate them about this stuff, um, I think is pretty laughable. And one idea that I've been bringing up a lot recently, and I, I hope that someone takes it on or funds something like this, is a fake news or disinformation museum. So rather than just taking down all this bad content when the platforms are playing whack-a-troll. I would love for people to get a notification that they have interacted with content that's been removed. Here's why it's been removed. And then you can interact with it in the ecosystem that it exists in, understanding how many engagements it got, understanding you know, what the network was, how it all connects. Because so often, especially with Facebook, which just did a big takedown yesterday, including accounts in Ukraine, they just give us snippets and we have to trust their narrative of how it worked. And I think there are so many people who don't understand the broader fabric of how disinformation works. And I think that could be an interesting. Way to educate the people who are interested in learning that. Not everyone is going to be, but for those who are, um, making that interesting, user-friendly experience could be a way to do that. And Asha, uh, if you have anything to add, I'm passing it over to you. Yeah, I I would add only. um, I would add civic education to that. Oh, of course, Um, yeah.
3: You know, the I think one of the vulnerabilities that um, Russia exploits is just this. You know, the, the fragmentation that exists because we have increasingly lost sight about, of common civic values, things like rule of law, the importance of a free press, um, you know, why we don't like dictators, um, those kinds of things that, you know, as some of us growing up, we kind of got those through entertainment. Say, I, I show my class when I teach disinformation, um, Schoolhouse Rock for example, um, you know, no more kings. Um, I think in some ways, you know, Hamilton kind of is able to, to convey some of that. But we need that on a larger scale. I think only nine states in the country require a full year of civic education. Um, and so we're increasingly getting a population that can fall prey to things like there must be a deep state, because they don't really understand how the government works. Um, so I would just say civic education, and I would I think I echo your idea of um, social media platforms being a vehicle. I think that could for 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 digital literacy that could be something that could be regulated, um, where there is some required content that, that these platforms have to uh, convey or make sure their users interface with that are going to teach them these skills. Um, because I think, and we haven't got this is a whole other topic, but you know the the finance, the economic model that these media platforms are built on um, are not incentivized to encourage digital literacy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they want you to be addicted. They want you to get to the most extreme, you know, content because that creates more clicks and it makes them more money. So you have to find a way to um, get them out of that. I, I think they're basically the equivalent of tobacco. Um, they're, they're today's version of tobacco. They're not really good for anybody, um, but their interests are not aligned with that of the, of the public and that's where regulation should come in i think
2: you know speaking of popular culture as a source for our commonly held values uh, i'd like to blame star trek and the prime directive for the reason why all the nerds at facebook and twitter don't want to interfere because you know <laughs> sorry this is a nerd joke but the prime directive is you don't interfere with the development of an alien civilization so when you brought up the idea of the museum i'm seriously thinking to myself you know like, no, 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 that. They, they would never do that, right? Because they're <laughs> sort of studying it and it's kind of splendid Petri dish of chaos. Um, all right, look, we have a lot more questions. Uh, <laughs> let me, let me uh, ask a couple of them if I can sort of quickly and, and we can just uh, go through them that way. Uh, this one from Kurt Kuhn at uh, IWP is, what is the difference in the marketplace of ideas on the cyber platform from disinformation in more traditional, say, print, uh, TV, radio? Um, and And then he sort of repeats, I think this uh, this line that you engaged with earlier, isn't truth and debate in the marketplace of ideas the best antidote to lies and manipulation and And, and I would add that it doesn't make a difference if it's happening in cyberspace uh, versus where, where everyone's equal right Everyone in cyberspace can put in their two cents versus you know if you have a Walter Cronkite lying to you that you know, that's a so.
1: So I think um, the another big difference is the way that this information is incentivized with which ASHA was just getting at. Um, I wouldn't say that there is a real normal, equitable debate on social media platforms. I've been looking a lot at Facebook groups lately, and people in groups it's just I mean, talk about filter bubbles. that's like a filter concrete bunker I mean <laughs> There's, there's no way into some of these groups. They are secret or closed. They don't include people. Anybody who's a dissenting voice gets booted. And not only that, but the platforms are incentivizing people to join similar groups. And they get notifications when people are posting content there because they want to keep them engaged. So it's not really, you know, Zuckerberg likes to say it's not even the digital public square. It's your digital living room. And I've been saying, mm. no, no, no. It's a digital creepy basement where you go to talk about things that you shouldn't be talking about in the the public square, right? And they're incentivizing that. So that's that's a real problem right now. Asha, I don't know if you have anything to add. Yeah. And I would say I would completely agree with you. And it's not only your digital creepy basement, but
3: even in your real digital creepy basement, you wouldn't have fake people there. Um, You know, you're really only limited to actual human beings. And I think this is another way that the marketplace of ideas gets distorted. Because if you're in true public square, the voices are limited to the people who are actually there. You're going to go to the speaker's corner that appeals to you. You're going to walk away from the ones that don't. Um, Whereas in the digital sphere, there's artificial artificial amplification of particular ideas. And so, you know, it's cheating. Um, It's cheating in the marketplace of ideas. And so if digital platforms can't find an effective way to remove those fake voices, the trolls, the bots, um, you're not actually approximating the true public square, is what I would say.
2: Mm. I, I love that the digital creepy basement. Um, <laughs> we, we've got we've got like uh, four minutes left here, so what I'm going to do is weave together uh, two questions: one from Robert in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and one from Jeff Trimble at the Ohio State University, and ask essentially, um, you know, if, if we were in a disinformation war with Russia. Uh, Are we still or is it the case that um, basically homegrown forces have learned the lessons uh, from Russian disinformation tactics and maybe other third parties have as well, and that the Russians can walk away from that war, they can declare truce and the problem doesn't go away. And to the extent that that may be the case, what do we do about it going forward?
1: So I would say we are absolutely still in an information war with Russia. Uh, we have not, you know, imposed costs on Russia to an extent that has been a necessary deterrent. Uh, our government parts of our government, the executive branch, has openly accepted foreign assistance in terms of uh, interference related to the election. And not only that, um, the social media companies also have not closed off all of the avenues that the foreign adversaries are using to manipulate our discourse. Um, It's such a low cost, both in terms of human and monetary spend, that there's no reason any bad actor would stop right now it it, it's really quite effective and in terms of uh evidence for that you know even in 2017 uh the flash mob story i that i told before that was after the election we saw evidence of russian interference in the midterm elections although it was a bit different again everyone was looking for troll accounts where they weren't necessarily there and instead what's happening is these vectors of domestic disinformation are being somewhat manipulated by bad actors who are information laundering. So rather than creating a fake account and using that to amplify certain narratives, a narrative is being introduced and laundered through an authentic American voice, which makes it very difficult to push back against. And for that, although I, you know, it's politically uh, uh, kryptonite, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily point to this all the time. But a great example of that is. The Ukraine impeachment narrative about the crowdstrike conspiracy theory that we heard being repeated during the uh, the impeachment proceedings as well as the the narrative that you know Zelensky was some sort of uh, Trump enemy um, all of this was laundered through foreign actors. And again, we don't necessarily know whether they were connected uh, only to Ukraine or if there is some Russian influence there with these folks who were working with Rudy Giuliani. And then this ended up, you know, as part of the congressional record during a conclusive impeachment proceeding. So that's an example of narrative laundering. Uh, it's still happening. It's very difficult to track and prove, but I don't think there is any reason for any bad actor to stop. And then Russia is one of the most adept at that.
2: Asha, any final comment on, on this or anything else you want to add?
3: Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest lessons of Nina's book is that once these tactics get adopted by domestic actors, you are entering very dangerous territory. And I see, I think that India is for exa- is an example of, of a place where um, a domestic uh, government-sponsored disinformation apparatus um, essentially is helping bolster um, an author- authoritarian, you know, regime um, and also a lot of sectarian violence. Um, I think the antidote, the only thing then that's standing in between you is uh, the free press. Um, and I think that the last lesson I would say is that the press is going to have to accommodate this new um, arena because there's a way in which I think the, the press still tries to grapple with neutrality and objectivity. And then in many ways um, unwittingly helps amplify disinformation. So, you know, you can't, you have to call a lie a lie, I guess, Um, and kind of crossing that little line is very difficult, I think, from a journalistic ethics point of view, and it's gonna be something that we grapple with.
2: Okay, well, we've got a wrap right now, but let me end, uh, speaking of presses, by saying you can get Nina's book uh, everywhere where books are sold. Uh, Oh, there you go, you have the real thing, I love it. Oh, you get wow, all right, all right, you win. Uh, but thank you all so much. Thanks, thanks to both of you and Jane uh, for joining our discussion and thank you all for tuning in and for your questions. Um, and congratulations again to, to you, Nina and by the book.
1: Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.